I think when you align yourself with what is, then there's room for acceptance to flow in. And when you accept what is, then you recognize the opportunities in that given situation. From the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, this is Road to Resilience, a podcast about facing adversity. I'm John Earl. My guest today is Dr. Anu Lala. She's a cardiologist here at Mount Sinai. She works with patients who are suffering from heart failure, which is not a term that she likes, and we'll talk about that. But the reason I wanted to have her on is because, in addition to being a great doctor, she's also a master at guiding patients through what can be one of the scariest, most uncertain times in their life. These are patients who, like I said, have a heart that's not functioning properly, that are sometimes waiting for transplants for months on end. And Dr. Lala brings this incredible, warm, very spiritually informed sensibility to her practice. And so in our conversation, she shares things that I think are really relevant for anybody. Thoughts on living in uncertainty, thoughts on purpose, the things that working at the precipice of life and death as she does bring into very clear focus, I think. So it's a beautiful conversation. I really enjoyed having it. And I think you're going to really enjoy listening to it. So put yourself in a quiet place if you can. Close your eyes and listen. Dr. Anulala, welcome to Road to Resilience. Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting. So I want to start out with a question that I'm going to borrow from a favorite podcast of mine called On Being. And in the beginning of every episode, Krista Tippett, the host, asks her guest about the spiritual background that they have. So I'm just wondering, um, what was the sort of spirituality that you grew up with? Thanks so much for asking. Uh, I think my spiritual upbringing has a lot to do with where I am today. Uh, I grew up in a Hindu household. I consider myself Hindu. But what I loved about how our parents raised us was from the very beginning, we were taught that all religions say the same thing in different ways. And I also went to a school. It's called the Swami Vivekanand Vidyapit. And Swami Vivekanand was a great philosopher, spiritual teacher, who also emphasized the universality of religion and really had more of a focus on spirituality than on rituals and belief systems. And so I thought that that was so empowering. And uh, I know it's a long answer to your question, but that that's my spiritual background or upbringing. That sort of idea that we're all connected, that we're all similar inside, is very much integrated into your work. This is now jumping ahead a little bit as a cardiologist here. Can you talk about that connection? I've thought a lot about this. I think what I think about what is it that enables a connection between two people and particularly in the vulnerable space of where a patient is coming to a physician with a problem or with a challenge. And I think the connection that is afforded is based on empathy. Right? And and not there's a distinction between feeling sorry for the other person or for for the patient who's going through the particular ordeal or faced with a particular disease process and recognizing the oneness in human suffering and joy, right? And so I think that empathy is so critical. And what underlies that empathy is the recognition that we are all ultimately the same. You told me something fascinating when we spoke earlier, and it's that a heart from any patient, regardless of their background, can sustain life in the heart of a patient from a completely different background, different gender, different ethnic background. 
that blew my mind. I mean, the heart is, has no shortage of kind of spiritual connotations, but that is a very powerful one. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say that. I think that's, if that's not a direct manifestation of oneness, then I don't know what is. And I remember so distinctly being in training. I was in Boston and I went for my first heart transplant um, surgery to observe. And without disclosing the actual information, I just remember how the heart that was being given to this particular individual was of the opposite gender, a completely different race, completely different languages spoken. And yet she woke up the next day full of life, really, you know, restored. Uh, And I think that is just the most profound example of oneness and how we're just the same. When did you realize that you wanted to be a healer, not just like be a doctor, but do the work of a doctor? I don't know if I thought about it that way, quite frankly. I loved the idea of serving as an instrument to heal. And I first knew that I wanted to do this, I think, when I was a young kid. My father is a cardiologist and my grandmother was visiting from India. I think I was 12 years old at the time and she actually had a heart attack in our living room. And she emphatically stated that she did not want to go to the hospital under any circumstances. Uh, She was in her 80s. And so my father said, okay, we'll manage you at home. And so he brought an EKG machine at home. He brought aspirin. He brought morphine. And we stayed with her all night. I watched her have nausea and pain. And uh, my father kind of employed us to be a part of the process. And I remember distinctly being told to feel for her pulse. And uh, I had my fingers on her wrist feeling her pulse. And that has become something, a, a ritual, if you will, in terms of how I see patients and how I practice. So anyone who walks into my clinic, the first thing I do is sit down once they're comfortable, ask how they are. And then as I'm asking how they are, I put my hands on their on their wrists and feel for their pulse. And I think what I was so taken by at that time was the the rhythm and how much you could get out of that, of, of touching someone there, feeling their pulse, feeling the rhythm of their life, literally, um, and the nature and the quality of that pulse. And um, yeah, from that experience on, I, I knew I wanted to be a doctor and I also knew I wanted to do cardiology. What do you feel for when you feel a patient's pulse? The first part of it is just touching the patient, skin to skin, right? Um, what does that I, do? I don't know. I, I think it almost enables a sort of immediate connection. You know, it almost breaks barriers. And I know it's challenging to talk about skin to skin connection in COVID times, but um, it it just, whatever walls are up, it kind of brings them down immediately. And so, you know, stand, I sit in front of the patient, I put my fingers on both of their wrists and I look at them in their eyes and then ask them about, it could be superficial conversation, but it's a connection that's established. And then what I'm feeling for is the nature of that pulse, the strength of it, whether it's bounding or whether it's weak, whether it's 
slow or whether it's fast, whether it's thready or whether it's coming up against my fingertips. It's hard to articulate, but I've now developed a sense of understanding the circulation and also their sort of state of mind, their physiological state at that time. We talked a little bit about the heart as myth and metaphor, but it's also an incredible physical organ. Tell us about that. What I love uh, about the heart is how many functions it performs. So it's not only a pump responsible for literally pumping blood to the rest of the body, but it also has an electrical system that governs how it pumps and provides the rhythm for the body, right? It's literally your your body's pacemaker. Mm-hmm. I love that there's physics involved and fluid mechanics involved and valves opening and closing. And I mean, this almost sounds silly, but I love how the color of the blood changes from one chamber to the next, you know, so you have deoxygenated or blue blood coming to the heart, seeking restoration, if you will, with oxygen and nutrients. And so the heart pumps that blood to the lungs only to be within a microsecond receiving blood from the lungs that's now bright red and full of oxygen and nutrients and then sends it out to the rest of the body. And I think it's such a beautiful representation of being energy deplete and then being energy repleted um, all in one beat, you know? And so I I just love how multifaceted uh, the heart is. I'm stuck on that image of the blue blood coming in and the bright red blood going out. It's like listeners can't see this, but there are Buddhas and there are Hindu images and there are all sorts of kind of spiritual images in here. And there's also a heart and the heart fits right in (laughs) given what we're talking about and given the heart's function as a restorative organ. How would you describe your philosophy of the doctor-patient relationship? Because I know that's very important to you. So the first thing is, is really being able to establish that human connection. Like I said, sort of shedding the barriers and the layers and just kind of connecting human to human because recognizing that this is a human experience, confronting disease and illness is a human experience. And so I think that's really important to me. And I'm not going to lie. I mean, there are times where you get caught up in the roles that we play right? I'm physician, you are patient. But the most satisfying and fulfilling encounters are the ones where we kind of shed those roles and recognize the the humanness of our connection. And then it's about empowering patients and their families to accept what is, which is the hardest part, right? Anyone who's told that their heart is not functioning or that they need a new heart It's devastating news. And the human inclination is to resist it or not want to accept it or feel self-pity or feel unlucky, right? All of these things are completely normal. And if I could do one thing, it's my prayer and hope that I can help patients accept what is and That requires giving them information in a way that's not debilitating. So that's the first part of it. And then once we accept... Wait, what does that mean? 
What does it mean to give a patient information in a way that's not deb- how do you do that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you I, I think I think when you align yourself with what is, then there's room for acceptance to flow in. And when you accept what is, then you recognize the opportunities in that given situation. So I know I'm being vague, but let's, you know, I, I'm obviously a heart transplant physician and a heart function doctor. So I have young patients. I have a young patient who just celebrated Father's Day four months out from his heart transplant with his two little boys. And he was told at the age of 38 that his heart was not functioning and that he would need a new heart. And he stayed in hospital for three months waiting for that new heart. And then once he had the surgery, he had challenges and bumps along the road. Before he could go home, it was another several weeks. And so each day was about providing information in an objective way and then moving towards acceptance. And so when I say that I provide information or I try to provide information in a non-debilitating way, I like to try and focus on what is working rather than what is not working. What do you say? So with this particular patient who I became very close with, we would start the day off with, let's start, let's talk about all the things that are working. So your brain is working. We're having this conversation right now. You can see, you can hear, you can taste, you can smell. Your lungs are working. You're not on oxygen. Your kidneys are working. You're making a lot of urine in response to the medicine that we're giving you. Um, Really going down the list. Oh, yeah. That your limbs are working. You're able to write and communicate with your family. You're able to walk. Your bowels are moving. Your, your, Your liver is working. And then, yeah, your heart is not functioning well, and that's why we need to replace it. But when you contextualize it like that, I'm not sugarcoating anything by any means, but I am hopefully allowing for recognition of all the things that are working. And I think that's true of life, right? When you only focus on what's not working out in your life, then you feel like, oh, you know, woe is me, why me, pity party sort of situation. But when you try and shift your attention to what is working and have gratitude for what is working, I think I think it allows for more acceptance for the challenge that you're faced. You know, it strikes me that anybody could get up first thing in the morning and go through their bodily systems and say, well, this is working, this is working, this is working. Maybe not a bad idea. It's an amazing idea, right? I wish I could do it more often. It's easier to to say these things <laughs> when you're confronted with someone else seeking your guidance. But I think if we could do that, I mean, some of the most effective meditation practices are exactly that, right? Focusing on the breath, the fact that you're able to breathe um, is pretty amazing. Language is important to you. Yeah. Not saying heart failure. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for bringing that up. That's something I feel so passionately about. You know, the word heart failure or the term heart failure is just, I talk a lot about empowerment and not wanting to give patients information in a way that's debilitating. That's a perfect example, right? By opening up and telling patients, particularly young ones, you have heart failure. I can't imagine a more devastating diagnosis because the word failure is perhaps the most negative word in the English language, right? And so I I think we do patients a disservice by using that term. 
So I and, and others in the community are really, really trying hard to change the language we use to focus on function mm. rather than, I honestly can't even say it, <laughs> failure, because that implies the end of the road. It implies that there's not a lot of options left. It implies that it's time to be hopeless, quite frankly. And I think when we talk about function, we can talk about the entire timeline. We can talk about prevention. We can talk about maintenance of health, preservation of function, restoration of function, and replacement of function if and when necessary. But I think it just opens up how we can speak about the patient's particular problem. And I, I can tell you, I had another patient, also a young father, uh, ironically, a, a successful entrepreneur, had everything going for him, you know, and was was told that he had heart failure. And he simply, he said, just don't tell me that. I don't want to hear it. I can't, I can't accept that. He goes, I don't fail at things in life. And that really struck me. Well, that's what came to mind for me is that failure is also kind of a moral term. Mm. You talk about the failure of a body, the failure of a heart. It's kind of like, ooh, what did I do wrong? Right, right. What did I do wrong or why me? Mm. And so I immediately connected with this this other patient about function. And he was like, yeah, that that really sits with me. Let's do that. I also like the word function because it's not just the heart. It's how you function as a human being as well. And they go hand in hand. That seems to get to something else I want to ask you, which is about the why that heart function has to do also with the functioning of the person with their heart and what they want to do. That's right. That's so right. When I am trying to present options for therapy or next steps to a patient, for me, it's really, really important to understand what their why is. What's their motivation? And that might sound very trite and almost silly, you know, what's your motivation to live? Some patients are like, what do you mean? <laughs> of course I want to live. And so obviously you ask it in a more finessed and sensitive <laughs> way, right? And so it's more so, well, what do you enjoy doing? What's an ideal day for you? So it's like, what's your heart for? Yeah, right. Why? What, what makes you tick, so to speak, right? And uh, I had a patient recently who I met in the CCU who did not want to hear about a machine to take the over CCU, for her heart. Sorry. I'm sorry, the cardiac care unit. And she didn't want to hear about a machine to take over the function of her heart called an LVAD. She said, oh, absolutely not. That's not for me. And I said, what's, what's an ideal day for you? She said, well, taking my, grand, uh, my grandson to the park. I said, well, how do you take him to the park? You can barely walk. You know, your heart is, is weak and it, you feel so short of breath and tired. And she says, yeah, we go slowly. He holds my hand and he tells me about his day at school. And then I sit at the park bench and he plays on the playground, but he keeps checking in with me. And then we slowly walk home. And to me, that's the ideal time. Like I don't, for, I don't think about any problems during that time. I feel like life is full. And that was so telling to me. And I said, it sounds like you would like to keep doing that. And I, I said to her, well, what if I told you that having an LVAD, having this machine to take over your heart would allow you to keep doing that and maybe even more? And with that, a window opened where there wasn't a wall uh, in terms of hearing about this option and what the machine was like. And then there was 
well, tell me a little bit more about this machine. What would it be like? What does it involve? And so that's just an example of when you get to the patient's why, you can help offer uh, ways to continue. And that's not always the case. It's not. Um, and there's there's tremendous dignity in uh, allowing a patient to transition to end of life as well. But first understanding the why, I think, is critical. Ever thought about enrolling in a clinical trial? The Mount Sinai Health System has over 800 active clinical trials, each geared toward developing new medicines and treatments. Visit mountsinai.org slash clinical dash trials to see if you're eligible. Mount Sinai, we find a way. We talked a little bit about uncertainty. You deal with a lot of patients who are in a very uncertain situation. Right. Who don't know what today or what tomorrow is going to bring. Yeah. How do you guide them? (laughs) I wish we all had guidance on that, right? I think uncertainty is the most... At least for me, honestly, that's a that's a big challenge that I face in my everyday life, right? And you have children, you have loved ones and career things, and you wonder what's going to happen. You want to know the outcome uh, of a journey before it started, right? right? But it's particularly relevant as you bring up in cases of, of disease or illness. Where I'm faced with it all the time, right? All the time. I, I just had another patient who said, well... Is this definitely going to happen tomorrow? Am I definitely going to get a heart? Am I definitely going to have it within three months? Am I definitely going to survive for 10 years after I get a new heart? And all of these questions, I always say I don't know for sure. Nothing is certain. But what I can tell you are statistics. I can share with you what we've learned over the years. But what we do have is this moment right now and what I know right now. And the more that we shift our focus to the present moment, the more we're aligned, as you mentioned, with the present moment, the more there's acceptance. And the the biggest word that I use and that I think is so profoundly powerful is surrender. I always say this. I mean, any one of my patients that you speak to will tell you, I say, all we can do is surrender. I, we can, what we can do is provide you with the knowledge, with the information. We can, thank God here at at Sinai, we have the ability to provide every possible therapeutic option. But we don't ultimately have full control over the result of what happens. And that's the case of anything in life. And so when you surrender to the present moment, you accept what it is for what it is. I think there is empowerment in that and there is peace in that and if I can help a patient see that and even remind myself of that (laughs) then I think that's that's beautiful do you ever get emotional with your patients oh gosh yeah sometimes yes sometimes no sometimes I surprise myself with how not you know, tearful I'll be in a given situation. And then there are other times where it, it's, it happens out of nowhere. We had a patient uh, now over a year and a half ago who was young and had a heart transplant when he was 
a child and then was confronted with needing another heart transplant at the age of 23. And there was a lot of, you know, ethical discussions about this. And um, he had a particularly challenging situation from a physiologic standpoint. And what was amazing for me as a learning experience is we got to work with the pediatric side of things and see how they were so involved in taking care of him for all these years. And even though he was officially on the adult side, in many ways, he had spent a lot of his childhood in the hospital. And so we worked with his pediatrician, we worked with an art therapist, and what struck me and what changed me was how they spoke to their patients. Because they constantly asked this particular patient if he would be okay with talking about next steps. And so what I witnessed with them was that they were always empowering they were always get, putting the ball in the patient's court. And I, I, that, I, I can just remember everything about this particular encounter where the therapist said, you remember when I told you that we might get to a point where we really need to talk about next steps and that we might be running out of options? And I remember him saying yes. And then she said, I think we're at that point now. And he just kind of stayed quiet. And she said, do you want to hear about what those next steps might look like. And to me in the moment, it was like, well, what do you mean? We have to tell him what next steps will look like. Mm, I see the difference. You know, so what if he says, no, (laughs) we can't just walk out of the room. But it was about empowering him to guide next steps. And I thought it was so beautifully done. And I think we can learn so much from how the pediatric folks do that. And so I've sort of incorporated that into my conversations with patients as well. You do a lot of listening. I think we try to, yeah. You mentioned to me in a previous conversation that you will listen to patients who've died and come back to life, if you will. Yeah. Can you share anything that you've heard that has stuck with you? Yeah. I mean, it. it you know, to some people it will sound almost <laughs> voodoo-esque, right? <laughs> um, but what I have come to say and believe is anything is possible. And so I remain open to what patients want to share. I judge less and less and less, and that's my prayer for me as a, as a physician, as a healer, as a person, is to be void of judgment because they've seen things that I haven't. They've experienced things that I haven't. And so I've had many patients who have quote-unquote died and come back to life, right? Cardiac arrest, their heart stops for several seconds, minutes, sometimes longer, and then they're here alive to tell the story. And I've heard a variety of stories. I've heard one, there's one woman in particular comes to mind who's a psychologist and a therapist who while she was waiting for her heart was actually continuing therapy for her clients if you can imagine, while she was in the hospital. And she had a a very difficult experience where her heart stopped. And I spoke to her the next day, and she was actually well and fine, remarkably. And she became emotional, and she said, you know, I, I literally remember waking up screaming, saying, no, I'm not ready to go. It's not my time. And she goes, and I think I'm, because I... 
I, I said it so forcefully and it came from such a deep place. I think I'm here today to talk to you about it. And I told her, I said, I believe you. I believe it because we hear all kinds of stories like that all the time. So, you know, I think if anything, this just makes us so humble. There's so much we don't know. We think we know so much, right? Especially doctors. We go to medical school, then we do residency, then we do fellowship. And Anu, we're surrounded by your diplomas, <laughs> literally on three walls, <laughs> to your point. Right. I mean, and, and so you get to this point where you think you know it. And I think this field in particular teaches us that there is just so much we don't know, both physiologically, but also spiritually. Hmm. I think initially when I started out, I would be afraid to tell patients and families I didn't know the answer. And now I find so much power in that. When they ask certain questions, I say, I don't know, but we can figure it out together or we can try and find answers to that. Um, because I think that lends so much more credence to what I do know, <laughs> you know, and I've found surprisingly or not surprisingly that it allows for more trust. Mm -hmm. Because they know when I say I know something, I actually, at least I think I know it, right? <laughs> um, whereas when I say I don't, then I'm being honest and upfront with the fact that I don't. And I think that's really important to relay that to patients and families. Very unfortunately, I, I want to bring it down to sort of a more practical plane by asking you, what are some things that you do to cope with the, the stress, um, yeah, the stress of your work? You know, one thing that came to me that I think is actually so cool and so profound is that if you look at the heart as an organ, it's responsible for pumping blood and oxygen and nutrients to the rest of the body, right? And to perfuse organs, your brain, all your organs, your kidney, your gut, etc. But it needs its own nutrients. It needs its own source of energy. And for that, it has these arteries or these vessels that are reserved for itself to provide nutrients, blood, oxygen to itself so it can continue providing for the rest of the body. And if you think about it, what is a heart attack? A heart attack is when one of those arteries called the coronary arteries is blocked. And so the heart muscle doesn't get perfusion or oxygen or blood or nutrients, however you want to look at it, because there's an obstruction or a blockage. And so part of that muscle function then dies, right? And I think for us as providers or clinicians or physicians, it's kind of the same thing. You have to take care of yourself while you take care of others. And in fact, Unless you do that, you're not going to be able to provide for others, right? Or serve others in any meaningful capacity. And I think what I hope we will see with time is a greater emphasis on that. You know, more and more now we talk about physician wellness and well-being. But it's not just, you know, hip and cool to talk about. It's real. And that analogy to me is actually so profound and it's kind of the same thing. So I've realized that I need maintenance, you know, I need restoration. And so for me, uh, it's about any kind of workout generally does it. 
uh, whether whether it's running or yoga um, or even just like a high intensity, you know, orange theory workout, but anything that really gets me going in terms of getting my heart rate up is really, really helpful for me. I think spending time in meditation is helpful and writing, writing my journal is helpful. I think there's a distinction between doing things that you love and enjoy. Like I, I, nothing is better for me than spending time with my children and my husband and my family. But you have to recognize that while that's amazing, it may not necessarily be nurturing to you. And there's a distinction. And I'm slowly starting to realize that and, and trying to devote designated time to, to nurture myself. You have a copy of the Bhagavad Gita in front of you, the <laughs> sacred text. Was there something that you wanted to share from it? No, other than, you know, we have all of these texts, these spiritual books, and, you know, we're all ultimately seeking joy and peace, right? Ultimately, that's what we want. We want to feel heard and seen, and we want to feel peaceful, tranquil, and joyous inside. I think that's a pretty much universal uh, human desire. And what strikes me is no matter what text you read or what podcast you listen to, it's all about really aligning yourself with the present moment and recognizing the beauty of what is. Like, I'm here with you now. It, like makes me want to cry because it's amazing, right? I we're connecting on a, on a different level and uh, we're in good health and we're enjoying a beautiful conversation. And so this moment is perfect as it is, you know, it's, it's whole and complete. And I say this thing to my, my children before they sleep, there's a Sanskrit um, shlok or, or, or mantra, if you will, that says, you know, it, it basically is Purnamada and everything is about wholeness. And so what we say after that is all is perfect, whole, and complete. You are perfect, whole, and complete. I am perfect, whole, and complete. And this moment is perfect, whole, and complete. Thank you so much, Dr. Lala. Thank you. What an honor. For taking this time. Thank you so much. Dr. Anu Lala is a heart function cardiologist here at Mount Sinai. Thank you again, Dr. Lala, for that conversation. Road to Resilience is a production of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's made by me, Nikki Cheatham, and our warm-hearted executive producer, Lucille Lee. From all of us here, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.